0: Good morning. Well, I don't know if you recall. Some of you I'm sure will. Um, we talked last week very briefly about the fact that uh, Troy would be stepping down within uh, a few months as, as deacon for some other uh, commitments that God has put in front of him. It uh, absolutely remains uh, available for help and ministry and involvement, but... Uh, we are also asking you as a church to be praying for this, that the uh, elders would have God's wisdom and leadership as we weigh and consider who steps in. But we're also asking that you be praying if the Holy Spirit lays names, individuals on your mind uh, to step into that role as deacon. And, and in that vein, can I get your assistance, sir? start. Start. Passing some down. Thank you. Um, and everybody can get one. We, we have plenty of these. And, and the handout that you're getting right now is um, specifically some scripture that the New Testament gives us. That when we're considering inviting folks to step into the ministry designated as a deacon, uh, we're looking for things that are already visible and in place. And so as you're getting that, I want to read uh, Acts, 626, uh, Acts 6, 2 through 6. And this was very, very early in the formation of the church. It says, so the 12 summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, it is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit, and of wisdom, whom whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. This statement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. And, and most of you are probably familiar with the background of that, but the, the early church immediately began taking care of widows in their fellowship uh, who did not have family to care for them. And yet, that ministry had grown so fast uh, that it was, it was now taking up huge amounts of time for the apostles and that was the beginning of this specific helper ministry within the body where those, those men of God were designated to carry out the physical ministries of the church, the physical tasks and business of the church so that the elders were free to pursue the spiritual and prepare for ministering to the spiritual. And yet I hope you notice this. They were asking seven men to take care of this task of distributing food and care to the widows, but they said, We want men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom. So part of what we get to recognize about everything, and whether it's somebody who's who's watching two-year-olds in the nursery, whether it's someone who's an elder, whether it's someone who's Uh, ministering in a Bible study during the week, whether it's someone who's working with the youth, whether it's a a deacon managing the facility of the building, that we have this mindset, and that we keep growing in this mindset, that everything that the church does is spiritual. And that everything that we do as a body of Christ is meant to have an intimate union with Christ. We just read... um, Kim just read for us a few minutes ago, John 15. And right in there, where in 15.5, 15, where Jesus says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And that we grow that mindset, not as a fearful thing, but as a joyful equipping, that in union and partnership with Jesus Christ, now, whether it's the ministry of a deacon or an elder, or whether it's the ministry of, of the hospitality crew, or it's ministry of a Sunday school teacher, that we're recognizing that all these things, we choose genuine union with Jesus Christ. And then Jesus Christ himself brings effectiveness to that ministry. So we're not just asking for men to be deacons because they got nothing better to do. Uh, we're not trying to have, invite folks to become deacons because we want to give them a job. And maybe that will get them more involved in church. The purpose is that we're looking at at men and women who have already exemplified in their life a pursuit of God, who've already exemplified in their life that they have opened their life to the fullness of the Holy Spirit and the leadership of God, who already have a good reputation because of the impact of the Holy Spirit through them into others. And then Paul, writing to Timothy in chapter 3, adds a few specifics to that. He says, deacons, likewise, must be men of dignity. Not double-tongued, so they say what they mean, they mean what they say. Or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain. They're not focused on, on overindulgence and they're not focused on selfishness. But holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. These men must also first be tested, that means examined. Then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Doesn't mean they've reached sinless Perfection. It means that they have a solid and consistent life of partnership with God in in the way they conduct themselves in every area. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Deacons must be husbands of only one wife and good managers of their children and their own households. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that it is in Christ Jesus. So, as you 're praying, as you 're considering, uh, and without getting too uh, intense about it, because uh, i 've had numerous men through the years that, as we talk about this, they go well, i don 't think anybody can be a deacon, and then you read through all the qualifications for an elder, and, and it adds to that the ability to teach and to lead the church doctrinally and spiritually and well then i don 't think anybody can be an elder so These criteria are not about somebody, again, who is sinlessly perfect, but that we see consistent maturity. We see consistent maturity in these qualities. So I'm going to leave that in your hands to be thinking about, pondering, praying, reading. Uh, If the Holy Spirit lays it on your heart that you want to be considered as a deacon, please again come and speak to one of the elders or deacons that are listed at the bottom of the page. Uh, but as you're praying, if someone else comes to mind, and it'll, again, it'll be somebody that you look at their life, and to a certain extent, you're saying, I already see them doing the work of a deacon. I already see them having the presence and the impact of a deacon. Now we may expand the, the range of their responsibilities, but that we already see that heart of service. We already see that heart of helping, uh, which is at the, at the root of the word for deacon. Is someone who's a helper. Someone who assists in getting done the business of the church. So keep those in mind. We'll put the rest of these in the back in case somebody loses theirs or wants one next week. And now we are continuing our study. Transitioning over to John chapter 17. As we look at, at the reality of Jesus our King. Praying and interceding for us. I'm going to start at verse 11, John 17:11. I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you've given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. But now I come to you and these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I've given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. And we're going to pause there. Even though the thoughts continue, and we will continue looking at all of those thoughts. But we're going to pause there for today. And one thing I would encourage you to, to just notice as we've looked at this so far. You probably noticed this, and I, and I probably emphasized it a little bit in the way I read it. Of how frequently Jesus uses the word, the, wor- the word world. I can hardly say that. The word world in this passage. He uses it an incredible number of times. And if you read through the whole chapter, he uses the world repeatedly to make a contrast. So in 11 there, Jesus says, I'm no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. And drop down to 16, they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. And so Jesus is setting up a contrast here. Uh, One of the things that Troy just prayed Uh, is that we would be doers of the word and not merely hearers. And so as we're going through and we're recognizing this is the heart of Jesus, this prayer is is our Lord and Master and our King and our Savior, our sacrifice is his heart's desire for us. So that's worth saying, I want to think with Jesus the things he's thinking. I want to learn to pray for the things for myself and my brothers and sisters, the things that Jesus is praying. And so this concept of the world is worth worth pausing to capture if Jesus is making such a point of it through this whole chapter. Go to John 8.23. A few chapters back. And Jesus says this starting verse 23. And he was saying to them, you are from below, I am from above, you are of this world, I am not of this world. Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they were saying to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, what have I been saying to you from the beginning? I have many things to speak and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true. The things which I've heard from him, these I speak to the world. They did not realize that he'd been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you'll know that I am he. And I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father has taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And in in this context, Jesus is giving us a, a little bit of the concept of understanding this concept of the world or of not the world and he says you guys you're from below and he says i'm from above but he's making it clear he's not talking about a physical contrast he's not talking about elevation or altitude he's talking about a mindset because here's the thing is everything i got I got it from the Father. I don't do it on my own initiative. I do it because I look into the heart of the Father and I see that this is what matters to my Father. I hear the things He speaks and then I speak those to you because I speak the things that fit with my Father's words and my Father's thoughts and my Father's purposes. And then I like 29, one of my favorite verses for for us to be thinking about and applying, because in John 8, 29, He says this, He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone. For I always do the things that are pleasing to him. So again, that pleasing the father. It's personal. It's not legalistic. It's not just keeping the rules. It's not just trying to stay out of trouble. It's not just cleaning up my act. It means that I'm looking into the heart of the father. And that there's an actual father-son or father-daughter conversation going on that says, Father, if I'm going to be not of this world, if I'm not going to be characterized as if I belong to the things below, I want to comprehend what brings you pleasure. I'm going to comprehend what brings you delight. And that's what I'm going to pursue. So that not of the world. Go to Ephesians 2.2. 2. It's lived out in our growing and maturing. And in Ephesians 1, he has described our new position in Christ. He's described the, the raising of Christ to all authority and power. And Actually, let's start in verse 1 of Ephesians 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. And among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And he continues that. But notice back again in verse 2, he's saying, before you knew Christ, you operated according to the course of this world. And part of that, that course it means we operated apart from Christ. We operated by the principles and the priorities of this world. But please notice the second part of that verse. According to the course of this world, comma, according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. So, basically, he's really clarifying this world is run by Satan and it's run in a spirit of rebellion. And even as believers, this gets to be part of our wisdom and our humility and our conversation with God is, Father, help me to be aware of rebellion in me. That part of not being a part of the world, again, it doesn't just mean I clean up my act and I look better. It means that there is, again, this this joyful intimacy in Christ with this new father-son, father-daughter relationship we possess with God to say, Father, I want to look like I belong to you. I want to think and act like I belong to you. And so my only alternatives to think and work and look and act as if I belong to Satan. Those are my only two alternatives. And there are a multitude of ways that I can fit with the enemy That other people could still respect and like. There are a multitude of ways I can can interact in rebellion with the enemy. That are still going to look religious or faithful to people, to humans. But God will go, but I'm looking at the heart. And what I heart, the heart I'm looking for is sons and daughters who love doing what pleases me. Not just who love being religious or love going to church. Or love being respectable in some spiritual endeavor. Because Satan is good with all of that. He really is. Satan is wonderfully accepting of all of that religion and spirituality when it's not tied into obedience of the Father through faith and identity in Jesus Christ. So again, if we're hearing the faithful prayer of Jesus on our behalf and we're praying it with Him, we get to keep growing and recognizing, you know what, I was dead in those things. Rebellion was my natural state. And again, you know, I think I've asked this numerous times, you know, so I won't ask it. You know, how many people accepted Christ when you were five or six or seven? And a pretty good portion of our congregation accepted Christ when we were pretty young. So at five, I didn't look like some horrible heathen. I just looked like a little boy going to Sunday school, but trying to get away with everything he could. My heart was rebellious. And not because when I accepted Christ at six, suddenly I loved cleaning my room. Do you remember that transforming moment where... No, I didn't have that transforming moment. I still had to be probably threatened into cleaning my room. But something began to grow in me at six. That was about learning to love the purposes of the Father and desire to please the Father. And that's been a continuing process and and you guys know most of my story with some real dark detours but that's been a continuing process of God's faithfulness to me and to you is to help us keep growing in this father son father daughter love relationship where we love pleasing the father go to romans 12 we we hit this verse so often because it's about our minds and our minds are where so much of our choosing begins Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. I think we hit that verse at least every other week because of how frequently it applies that I need to think different if I'm going to do different. This is not rocket science. It's real simple. A five-year-old child can learn this principle and then apply it and grow in it is that I need to be discerning and studying and gathering the thoughts of God and then recognizing any way I think different than God, I'm the one who has to change. And I begin applying myself to the process of that transformation. I recognize that if I think different from God, I'm, I'm aligning at least some of my thinking with the world. I'm aligning with some of my thinking with rebelliousness. I'm aligning some of my thinking with the purposes of Satan. Doesn't mean I lost my salvation. But it means more growing to do. More challenge of discipleship to do. In choosing the father's ways of thinking. Let's go back to John 17. And shift gears a little bit here. Because he goes on and says this. In 13. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. And I wish all of you could have been in Sunday school. Because we started this conversation there. And as soon as we began to talk about joy, um, Larry asked a very, very, very focused question. So before we talk about growing in joy and having the joy of Jesus, it's worth understanding, what is joy? And one of the simple things, I won't try to recreate that whole conversation, to recognize that joy is not happiness based on circumstances. Because if if happiness is based on circumstances... What does it take to rob you of happiness? Pardon? Five minutes. minutes. Okay. (laughs) That's a good answer. Yeah. Something real quick can change my circumstances. A thousand things could change my circumstances. And it can happen, actually not even in five minutes. It could be in five seconds. That from one second to the next, tragedy can strike. From one second to the next... Deprivation can strike from one second to the next. A total transformation of my health, my finances, my social standing, all kinds of things can be taken. To recognize that anything on this planet can be touched without violating the purposes and the promises of God. There are no promises in Scripture that says my body cannot be touched. There are no promises in scripture that says my finances cannot be touched. There are preachers who built entire ministries over presuming that promise is there, but that promise is not there. That Peter and James and John and the early disciples, they weren't walking around in Cadillacs and private jets to prove that they had faith in God. They gave their lives as the evidence they had faith in God. So anything can be touched. But what can't be touched? Because part of what we're doing... Whoa. Part of what we're doing... Did I destroy an electronics right then? Everything's working? Okay, good. Okay. I, I know some of you already know this, but I have a, a gift for destroying electronics. So I'm just trying to move that out of the way. But one of the things we're talking about joy, Jesus said, my joy. And that we get to recognize there is something about Jesus' joy... That is unique. And for that same passage we looked at this morning, go to Hebrews chapter 12. And for those of you in Sunday school, just because we already had this conversation, keep listening. You know. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And so that recognition that we see in Jesus, joy as he faces the cross, because he has a vision and confidence, In the purposes of the Father, as we see his confidence and his peacefulness through the night of anguish, the night in which he was betrayed and the night in which he was arrested, that we see in Jesus that he's trusting in the Father's faithfulness. So, that if we're gonna be talking about growing joy, that means one way or another, I also have to be learning. How do I grow my vision of the Father's purposes and the Father's faithfulness and my involvement in those purposes? So the passage that Kim read for us a little earlier, when Jesus was talking about joy there, so keep in mind what we just read in Hebrews 12, but go back to 1 John 15, I'm sorry, the Gospel of John 15. 15. Because Jesus says this at the end of that one discussion, although he continues to say more. In verse 11, these things I've spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. And so one of the things that one word that we we came up with out of this Sunday school discussion that captures some of what Jesus was doing is that Jesus Was involved in a celebration. Of what God was going to accomplish. That Jesus was celebrating eternal things. So that he could sorrow over the temporary thing. Of his physical suffering. And his spiritual suffering under the wrath of the father. And he did. If you read Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane. There was real sorrow. There was real anguish. He was not pretending. It was real difficult anguish and yet Hebrews 12 is telling us that right in the middle of that he was celebrating what would get accomplished he was celebrating your salvation and you know I would like to think and I I think Jesus' mind was full enough that he wasn't necessarily specifically and personally thinking of Reg Larkin at that moment but he was in the generic in the sense that he was thinking of what he was going to accomplish for me and he said that's worth dying for And I even celebrate already that I see Reg and all these others who will put their faith in me. I see them perfected for eternity and rescued from the enemy. And that is worth celebrating right in the middle of my anguish. Right in the middle of my true suffering. That's worth celebrating. You know, and I don't know if you've ever had a moment. We don't have enough of these moments. None of us have enough of these moments. But we need to occasionally have a moment where we ponder, and maybe several moments, and maybe sometimes even a few hours, where we really set aside time to ponder, Father, I want to comprehend the eternity I would have had without a Savior, And then quickly turn to contemplate the eternity I'm going to have as a son or daughter of God. Because of the death of Jesus Christ. Because all of your wrath was poured on him. I want to contemplate that. I want to imagine me living there in eternity. And we're actually commanded to encourage one another with that awareness. So that recognition that Jesus was celebrating eternal things. While he went to his death. But I hope we notice something out of, first, uh, out of John 15. Because Jesus says, these things I've spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be made full. And I think one of the things I'm going to extrapolate, and this is just my word, and you might look at it and give it a different word and that'll be fine. But that when he's saying, I've spoken these things, he's saying all the verses, all the things I just said that came before it, I want you to pay attention because that's what I said so you would have full joy. And one word that captures what Jesus said before that, participation. So now it's not that I'm just celebrating the purposes of God and the faithfulness of God. I'm now committing myself to personal participation in the purposes of God. Jesus is talking about fruitfulness. And we've had that sermon another time, not that long ago, I think. So I won't try to recreate it now. But fruitfulness in Scripture has several different applications. One of the main areas of fruitfulness is that you and I keep growing in the fruit of the Spirit. The character of Jesus Christ. Galatians 5, 22 and 23. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So that Jesus is saying, if you participate with me in growing the character of Jesus Christ, you will be standing in a better position to grow and experience genuine celebratory joy than if you just believe this stuff, but you're not participating in it. And another area of fruitfulness is that I'm investing in human lives. When you and I are involved in nurturing another believer's growth, When you and I are involved in in praying for or even being an evangelist to bring someone else to Christ. That's fruitfulness. And again, the evangelist might be the last one they talk to who brings them into the fold. But you might be the one who's willing to just share kindness and love and the truth of Jesus Christ. And the witness of how God has worked in your life. And you're part of the process of that harvest. That's fruitfulness. That we're investing in people's lives. So that recognition that whether it's me growing or me bringing others to maturity. Or me playing a role in bringing others to Christ. Jesus is saying, if you participate in my purposes. You're going to be standing in a better place to actually grow unbreakable joy. And again, Jesus is praying this for you. He's praying this for me. So if I were to if I were to look back over many many years, all the way back to where I was uh, seventeen, I remember sitting in my dining room, reading the Bible, and at this point in my life, as as many of you know, I was still very much involved in the occult. I was already a believer, but I was involved in some dark teaching and dark stuff. But I was reading the Bible. And one of the things that struck me there, 17, reading the Bible in the dining room, was that it seemed like I kept seeing a whole bunch of joy about being a Christian in the Bible. And my dad walked by, and two, two things struck me, joy and power. And I, and I made that comment to him. I, he wasn't even having a conversation with me. I just made the comment out loud, Dad, I'm reading here in the Bible, and I don't know a lot of Christians with power and joy. And I remember my dad, who was having his own spiritual struggles, it was like he put on the brakes. Wherever he was going and whatever he was going to do, it was like, he just stopped and he turned to me and he took that moment real seriously. This is actually one of the best things he ever gave me. And he leaned over the table and he says, Reg, I don't care what you do or don't see in another human being. If the Father promises you something in that book, you believe it and you go after it. And I was sort of like, well, okay, Dad. But it stuck with me. And God still had to rescue me from the occult so that I could pursue that. But it made an impact me to recognize Jesus is really saying sons and daughters of God should be characterized by power and joy. Not earthly power. Not power that impresses human beings. Power in God's eyes. And that power, again, that is power about the transformation of our character and then the transformation of the people around us. That's power. Not whether I can go around and heal everybody. Not whether I can go around and do miracles that impress people. Does God do that stuff? Yes. We've had that hand raising too. And everybody in this room practically has known somebody or yourself seen God do healing. And also seen God not do healing. So that God in both instances was being faithful. When he chose to heal and when he didn't. But that's not the power that impresses God. The power that impresses God is that I believe him for the transformation of my character. And then I believe him so that I can play a role in bringing others to Christ. Or, or helping mature believers into, their, into the fullness of Christ. That's power. That's power. And this joy, Jesus is saying, if you're participating, you're abiding in me, you're abiding in my word, you're involved with me in pursuing the purposes of God, you will be in a stronger place to enjoy unbreakable, to enjoy unbreakable joy. So that's that's my word, along with celebration, is that I'm participating in it. I'm pursuing, I'm abiding, I'm choosing. I don't simply believe I'm going after the things that God has promised and said are a normal part of the Christian life. Power and joy are a normal part of the Christian life. That's not for a few super Christians. That's not for a few televangelists. The the life and power of Jesus Christ means that that power and joy is available to you personally, and me personally, this week, while we go do our regular week, while we do school and work and family and yard work and put up with the heat and drive on I-35, that on all of those things, God is saying, my joy, my life, my power, please ponder and choose and participate with me in these things so that the things I'm praying for you, you're praying them with me and you're going after them. Let's pray together. Father, these things really are so simple that a five-year-old can understand them and grow in them. And yet at the same time, Father, there are layers of challenge and complexity to these that we will be figuring out for our entire life. But one thing I pray, Father, is that you would help me in my heart and, and help each of us in our hearts That we set aside any rebellion. That we examine and recognize any taste of rebellion that says we'd rather do it our way. And that we end up aligning with the world in their rebellion. That we would be sons and daughters who love your ways and choose your ways. That we're not of the world even though we're in the world. That we recognize and agree and we build this mindset We may work in the world. We may do business in the world. We certainly have to pay bills and and function and get things done in the world. But that we have this peaceful agreement with you, Father. We're doing business here, but we don't belong here. This is not our final home, and this is not our final identity. This is not our final treasure. That everything we do here, we're wise enough to choose to do for eternity. Because we do them in your joy. We do them in your power. We pursue them in your name. Your purposes. Your priorities. Your authority. Father thank you that you're so gentle and patient with us. While we learn these things. But in the face of your gentleness. and the face of your patience. Father I pray that you would. You would urge us on and prod us on. To greater diligence. Greater depth of commitment. Even sacrificial commitment. To pursue these things. And Father I pray that as we're pursuing these things with diligence and and discipline. That we would never lose sight of this. If we're doing the real thing abiding in you. Our lives will exhibit greater and greater joy. And someone else will want to know where that joy comes from. And we get to be ready to point them to you. Thank you Father in Jesus name.